0: I've said uh, numerous times while we've been looking at one Timothy that we're going to tackle it more or less topically, um, and uh, and today's verses one and eight uh, might make you think that today we're going to do the topic of prayer. Um, that would be straightforward enough. First one says, uh, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, etc., be made for all people." And in verse eight, he speaks to men specifically. Says, "I desire that all men should pray." Uh, but in studying this passage uh, in particular. I can't escape a more obvious lesson that fills most of the middle verses about the nature of God uh, and his will for human salvation uh, and his vision for human flourishing. Uh, And so to do Paul's writings justice, I think we need to reverse my method for at least today uh, or or really go back to our our usual method. Today we're going to take more of a verse-by-verse approach to understand uh, not just the practicality of prayer, uh, of what Paul is saying uh, but the very deep foundations for it. So it is about prayer but it's also about uh, who God is uh, and what is uh, uh, what is a good life in Christ. Uh, a couple of things I've said each week as we've opened this letter from the Apostle to young Timothy, again this is just more context, Paul helpfully tells us the purpose of the letter or he tells Timothy and we get to read over his shoulder he says I'm writing in chapter 3 these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God this is why we're doing uh, mostly a topical look at this because uh, he's giving uh, piece by piece advice instruction for how things ought to look how one ought to behave and and so the content is then deliberately and immediately helpful Um, it's practical uh, and that rings true when the opening words of chapter 2 tell us straightforwardly, you must pray. Uh, and uh, and I have, so I, I just want to backtrack on something a little here. I have, uh, in the last few weeks, contrasted uh, this deliberately practical letter against some of Paul's more deliberately uh, theological writings... Uh, and I want to say something just to clarify what I mean there, because there is not actually uh, an obvious distance between what is theological and what is practical. Okay, theology—what you might, uh, what, or what we might uh, clumsily think of as uh, Christian theory or Christian philosophy, or uh, you know, like the, the brain stuff that we do to understand—well, that informs our practice. Uh, and so, uh, th- to the extent that our theology and our practice aren't married to each other and aren't connected, well, uh, that's the extent to which we need to change our practice, uh, or, or at the very least, carefully, carefully reevaluate our practices to see whether they do, you know, they continue to accord with what God says. most of what God teaches us about himself, the theology, uh, what we learn of God's nature and being, well that does in fact inform not only uh, our worship, who who we imagine in our mind when we speak to him, uh, but it informs also our daily living. God is a God of love, we learn, and so we practice a God-like love for one another, or, or we ought to. Uh, Even if, though, something that we could learn about God doesn't have an obvious implication for our lifestyle, could it really be said that knowledge about God is ever wasted knowledge? Uh, Isn't it sometimes, uh, even occasionally, enough to just know a thing and wonder at it? Uh, A bit like good art, for example. Good art is rarely useful. You couldn't dig a hole with it. Uh, but it's beautiful and beauty is not nothing. Uh, beauty is still a good, a true good, uh, perhaps even a priceless good. And so please, uh, while, I, uh, while I say, you know, isn't it great that we have a lovely practical letter full of, you know, grounded instruction from Paul, please don't ever hear me when, I, uh, when I'm pleased to find something practical and straightforward. Please don't ever hear me disparaging theology. I'm not doing that. Uh, Please don't ever disparage those things yourself, Uh, even if your own brain functions more naturally on uh, different practical functional tram lines. Um, It is good to have our uh, our horizons expanded as we learn more about God in, in the way that he presents himself to us. And so this, pa- this particular passage, the first six or so verses in chapter 2, which we're looking at today, it's one passage in the letter that is harder than most to separate the how one ought to behave, the practical stuff, uh, from its theological underpinnings. So, uh, so verse by verse, more or less, is how we're going to do things today for the first six verses. First of all then, Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. That's a pretty clear practical instruction. We, we should pray. Well, he uses four different words, uh, but prayer is in there too and, and prayer kind of is the catch-all. It's pretty hard to suggest it means anything less than uh, the church and its members should pray urgently, frequently for all people. Now get out and do it. Or maybe you could even say, well, we've sort of already done that earlier in the service. So if that's all there was to it, we could, we could check it off the list and say, job done today. Uh, But already, uh, when it says, uh, you must pray, well, that instruction itself uh, is impossible to separate uh, straightforward practice from deep theological truth. The fact that the first command is pray, just on its own, uh, tells us a great, great deal about God and the universe that we inhabit. So, for example, what if Paul said this in verse 1? First of all, then I urge you to lobby your government for the preservation of your religious freedoms. Well, that would be consistent uh, with what he says pleases God in verses two and three—that kings and those in high positions promote the right kind of environment for God's people to lead peaceful, quiet, and dignified lives. That would be consistent. But lobby is not what he says to do. Not first. Not in the first case, anyway. That command to lobby would teach us that our freedom is primarily in the hands of men. Uh, And it's contingent on how loud our voice gets and how uh, strategically our efforts are, are pieced together. But we don't speak to men. We speak to God. Dare I even use that word, lobby, of God? We lobby God in prayer as of first importance because although kings and other authority figures have true authority... It is authority that's been sovereignly delegated by God. And so for him to say that in these matters our first business is to pray teaches us about where the true and absolute authority lies and also what we should do, and that is pray. Uh, What if Paul said this in contrast? What if Paul said in verse 1, First of all then, I urge that you evangelise the lost. Well, that would be consistent as well with what he says uh, is God's will, in verse four, that all people be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth." Well, it would tell us that the fight for knowledge of truth um, it would tell us that the fight for knowledge of truth is primarily intellectual, and so you need to make arguments, present cases um, and, 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 and attack with logic. But instead, we're told to pray, which tells us that knowledge of the truth is not entirely the product of information and watertight logical arguments, but knowledge of the truth is the product of a spiritual awakening. Uh, and a failure to, and an ignorance of the truth is a spiritual blindness. So it's not a, it's not a deficiency in a person's intellect, it doesn't make them uh, stupid or immoral or, or less than to not know. But what we must do is pray, because that's what Paul says we must do, is pray. So to summarise, the command to pray teaches us who is in control and where the battle lines are drawn. And who is in control is God. So we skip all the way up the chain of command to him. And where the battle lines are drawn is spiritual, not mainly geographical or intellectual or logical or philosophical. And so we speak to God, who is spirit, to inform our steps in political engagement and evangelism, which I, I actually am convinced are both good things to be engaged in. They're just not the number one. So don't let me argue too loudly from silence that political lobbying and evangelising are wrong. Um, absolutely not. Simply, they must be flavoured and fuelled first with prayer. I mean, Paul, Paul really is emphatic. He says this is of first importance, that we must pray. He also throws four different words at the command. Supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings. Uh, he's, he is emphatic. He is firm. Supplication, um, by the way, it's from the word supply. It, it, it indicates that we lack something that God has and so we ask him to supply it. Uh, prayer... Uh, is a general word in the Greek that Paul wrote in, just as it's a fairly general word uh, in the way we use it in English. It is to request something. Uh, but, of course, we use it to say we request something of God. It's a, an ask for help. It can, in fact, carry an almost political flavour in the word petition. You know, we, put, we petition God, just as you might petition, not necessarily with signatures, but, uh, you know, in a lobbying sense, uh, a government. And so we do when we pray we we lobby god Uh, intercessions that word intercessions uh is uh is that indicates that we speak to god regarding others so prayers should not be entirely about me Uh, we speak for others we speak on behalf of others when we speak to god in prayer we pray for others and we trust that somewhere along the line we're in turn being prayed for by others and he speaks of thanksgiving because we are, we are grateful for the people that we pray for, uh, but also, uh, and, and probably mainly in this context, thanksgiving because we pray with confidence that God hears our prayers. Thanksgiving for the privilege it is to speak to God, to have an audience with him because we do well to acknowledge his answers when they come uh, and give thanks to him with thanksgiving. We're told to pray with thanksgiving uh, in other passages, in all circumstances, even in our trials. Uh, Paul's last words in this verse also teach uh, deep, deep truths. Not simply that as we pray, we should have a slot for prayers for all people uh, and then check it off the list. It teaches us that God is the God of all people. God's heart is with all people. Now, that all people uh it can mean two things and and it probably means both uh It can mean all kinds of people uh, and that 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 would be um, uh, that would be supported uh down in verse seven or eight. Uh, where Paul says, uh, he says how I'm a uh, a preacher, even to the Gentiles. And so he's talking about, you know, you guys see in, in terms of, you know, um, uh, there's Jews and there's others, the Gentiles. He says, well, I, I'm a preacher of the gospel to to the Gentiles too. God is for all kinds of people. And, and Paul actually often does push this, that he doesn't want to differentiate between all kinds of people. He he doesn't want us to see or understand uh, or, or function mainly by uh, distinguishing one from another. But I think the other, the other way uh, that uh, all people uh, can be understood is that it is all people, not just all kinds of people, but every person, which of course also absorbs, absorbs that every kind of person thing as well. We must pray for all people. It teaches us God is the God of all people. Uh, And we'll see this too in verse 5. And so, if God does not discriminate, then we mustn't either. Let me put it like this Uh, our freedom and our limitations do actually require us to make judgments about who we pray for. You cannot pray for every one of the 8 billion people on the world by name. Uh, We have limitations, uh, and there's uh, we need to make judgments about who we're going to pray for when it is that we sit down to pray. But we don't have permission to decide who we don't pray for. We're not allowed to make a decision to exclude a person from our prayer. For example, um, small children, I say this with some authority, small children seem to go through a phase as they learn to flex their prayer muscles. Um, and, and, and it's wonderful uh, but they go through a phase of wanting to pray for every single person by name. And so before meals and bed, the list can sometimes grow quite long. Dear God, thank you for mummy and for daddy and for brother and sister and grandma and granddad and auntie this and uncle that and this one and this one and that one, oh, 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 and, and, that one and that one. And it can, it can go on. Uh, in our home, many of you have featured in the prayers of our children. Uh, It's a difficult and theologically dubious thing to put a stop to the prayers of a child. It always feels a bit wrong to say, oh, that's enough now, okay? But kids, they really can get on a roll. And so I do feel quite free to say, we don't have to pray for everyone right now. We have to, at some point, make a judgment. You, You can't pray for everyone. It would be quite natural, wouldn't it, for me to say more prayers on behalf of my family than for you to say prayers on behalf of my family. Um. We can pray for people later and, and some people uh, just won't always make the list but we cannot say, no, you must not pray for that person. We cannot choose deliberately to leave a person out of our, you know, our idea of whether they, they are worthy of God's favour or help. That is not a decision we're at liberty to make. It's inexcusable that we would include any person or kind of person uh, from hopeful prayer. Uh, In the next verse, Paul uh, does narrow down the prayers for all people. Uh, He urges that prayers be made for all people. And then he does specify for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour. Paul doesn't single out authority figures for prayer because he or God considers authority, authority figures more worthy of prayer. Uh, it may be that they are more in need of prayer, uh, but but simply I think it 's because in praying for all people, as he commands in verse one, there are select people with disproportionate influence over the lives of many, and so, if you pray for a king, well you pray also for all of his subjects by by inference. And you do so in a more obvious way than a prayer for a particular individual is a prayer also for that man's king. Right? So if, if you pray uh, for a king, then you would hope, you would expect that what you pray for him would have a flow-down effect to, uh, for the good of those under him. Uh, and same as if you pray for uh, a, a leader in any sphere, whether it be spiritual or even in business. It would be good to pray for your direct manager or CEO or anyone expecting that those benefits would flow not only to you but to many the most fascinating fascinating thing about verse 2 isn't that we're told to pray for authority figures it's the vision though that paul paints of the good life i really this is really interesting this is what god desires for his people verse 2 peaceful quiet godly and dignified lives This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour. This is theology because we're learning about what it is in the heart of God. His heart for you is to lead a peaceful, quiet, godly and dignified life in every way. Nothing would please him more than for you to enjoy that. The life of optimum human flourishing in God's eyes is peaceful, quiet, godly and dignified. I suggest we ought to submit our will to God's and strive exactly for this kind of life. Okay, so number one, we pray for it because that's the order that this flows down in. But also by implication, it's the kind of life we ought to be striving and working for as well and promoting in our life and for the sake of others. We strive in prayer and in our conduct. Now, I know everyone's cut from a slightly different cloth, but... Uh, let's just break down those four words and we'll, we'll pair them so peace and quiet for starters now uh, I suspect many people start out young longing for something like an exciting and adventurous life and then by 30 or so the thought of peace and quiet suddenly equals exciting oh, I can think of nothing better but these words aren't about excitement versus rest Uh, or thrill versus calm. In the time uh, Paul wrote, I would say peace and quiet primarily meant two things, I I reckon we can gather from the context. First, it meant religious freedom. Uh, And second, I would say it means relational harmony. So religious freedom, Uh, the kings and authorities of the first century Roman Empire were not friendly to Christianity uh, in many cases, particularly in the earliest days of the church, they also weren't very interested in Christianity. It was, it was a very small movement that, were, that was easy to ignore. Uh, in fact, it, it sort of got absorbed in their mind in, in with Judaism. Uh, it was difficult to distinguish. Uh, but that's still to say that they, they weren't, the authorities were not automatically friendly or accommodating to those who were seeking to lead a Christian life. And so the peace and quiet Paul says they should pray for is related to freedoms and privileges like the ability to worship God alone rather than the Greek or Roman pantheon of gods that uh, were being foisted on all the subjects of, of the empire. Uh, all the right to gather and practice their faith. The right to exercise their religious freedom although they may not have used those same words as we, as we use them today. And so we pray for that. But also relational harmony, peace and quiet in relational harmony. Uh, This one is an internal battle more than an external one. The church Timothy is operating in has been poisoned by ignorant, arrogant show-offs who are puffed up uh, with self-importance and they're elbowing other people out of the way uh, so that they can get recognition and money and praise in the church. They've cultivated a church culture of one-upmanship and infighting where people are jealous and, and at each other which is so against the words that Jesus used when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, people who promote kindness and generosity and a, and a spirit of patience with one another. Blessed are the peacemakers. Christian community should be characterised by peace, not conflict. Now, that's not to say that the pursuit of peace is characterised mainly by conflict avoidance. Uh, the, the, it's, it, that's not what it is. Um, since doing nothing can sometimes make matters worse, okay? conflict avoidance isn 't the end goal. conflict prevention would be good. conflict resolution also good, certainly good healthy dose of forgiveness and grace and patience and, and being accommodating with one another in the face of conflict, we should be raising our hands first in prayer rather than in aggression is the picture uh, that he paints in I think verse eight. So God's vision of the Christian good life, the life that is pleasing uh, in his sight, is where uh, our lives are uh, to be characterised by peace and quiet, uh, but also to be godly and dignified. So while most people in middle age or thereabouts can more or less get on board with peace and quiet, that sounds pretty good, uh, it's not human nature. It's not natural to pursue godliness and dignity. To the extent that the average person might strive for something like dignity, uh, it's almost an appearance of dignity. It's almost always an appearance of dignity, an appearance that's cultivated for the sake of others or, or uh, for reputation. It's an appearance of dignity that can in fact be, uh, can be nothing more than you know, a large colour bond fence between the outside world and your own private life. Uh, so that you can hide your vices and keep them to yourself and have no one else know or question them. So to submit uh, and to share with God this vision uh, of godliness and dignity, well, this requires full devotion to God, full submission to him, to be godly and dignified in every way, in every aspect of our private life, put into actual death our own desires and choosing instead to desire things like moral purity, holiness, disgustingly generous and painfully forgiving love. This stuff is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour. And so we begin with prayer, we repent of our own conflicting desires and aspirations we give ourselves to serve God in every avenue of our private and public life as we seek to live the life that he pleases uh, and that he wants for us to have. This is the God, uh, our Saviour, who in verse 4 desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God so loved the world. Do you know where this is going? God so loved the world he gave his only son. Jesus willfully endured the shame and pain of the cross to bring us back to God. Uh, when, you, when you put it like that, it's almost not strong enough to say, as Paul says, that God desires all people to be saved. As if, you know, oh, God had a nice thought that, oh, you know, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be neat if people were saved? No, your desire for a thing, or the extent of your desire for a thing, is measured by what sacrifices you're willing to make to get it. And by the joy you experience once you receive it, well, God watched on as his own son was sacrificed and he rejoices with his angels in heaven when even one soul returns to him in faith. And so to say that God desires all people to be saved, well, that doesn't doesn't mean, by the way, that all people will be saved. The Bible is frighteningly clear on that point too. Unfortunately, many people disqualify themselves from God's salvation. But it's not ultimately, understand this, it's not ultimately a person's sins that disqualify them. And so I I would hate for you to sit there and be thinking, I've done too much wrong, or I've done one thing that was way too bad, and and that's going to keep me from God. No, if that keeps you from God, that's on you, not on Him. Sins can be forgiven. God has written that check. A willful refusal to bank that check will keep a person in the place of God's judgment. But sin can be forgiven. That's his promise. He's held nothing back. He really desires to give you that. It's yours if you take it. For there is one God, it says in verse 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus. Some would say this is very exclusive, isn't it? Only one God, only one mediator. And in one sense, it is exclusive. There is only one God and the rest are fake, I'm sorry. There is one mediator between God and men, Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said that. How astoundingly arrogant or true. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus, that one mediator between the one God and all the men and women. So you might, you might say this is extraordinarily, extraordinarily exclusive and no one likes uh, anything other than inclusive these days. But this one God is remarkably inclusive, more inclusive than you or anyone who, who bangs that drum. Please don't miss the repeated emphasis of all people in this. It, it, okay, it's one God. There's only one. We can't change that. Who would want to? But this is a God for all. Thanksgivings in our prayers should be made for all people because he desires for all people to be saved. Uh, and then down in verse 5, 6, he gave himself as a ransom for all. We'll look at that in a moment. And there is this mediator between God and men. Well, there That's inclusion, that's uh, unity. This one and only God leaves nobody out, but he welcomes all. Uh, And that too should inform our practice, shouldn't it? So when we pray, we should pray for all people. Uh, When we gather, we should welcome all people. When we serve, we should serve all people. And we should do all this with God's love and without favoritism. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Well, there's that for all language again. One God for all people. Jesus has sought to ransom, it says, everyone. I said just before that God, uh, I use the metaphor that God has uh, written a check and handed it over. It pays our debt. Well, the word ransom in this verse uh, extends a similar metaphor so that uh, we find ourselves being not only in debt, to God, a debt that we can't escape ourselves, uh, but in fact enslaved. And that might be uh, because of debt or it may be uh, for some other reason, enslaved. Uh, the Bible tells us uh, we are by our nature slaves to sin. And by the way, I think the nature of temptation and our own individual weaknesses tell the same story. It's not just the Bible telling you you're a slave to sin, it's uh, it's your own Past 24 hours, perhaps. We all, from time to time, find ourselves powerless in the face of even our own desires, which we know are harmful. Well, Jesus has paid not only a debt so that we owe nothing, he has paid the full price for our freedom from slavery. We think of ransom. These days, more in terms of kidnapping, that's how that word's usually used. It was, it was slavery really back then uh, that, that he's referring to because slavery really was everywhere. Um, but it, even then, in the context, context of kidnapping, it, it still works. It's, it's, uh, it's a purchased freedom. We've been stolen away. Our freedom has been taken from us. And just like the phenomenon they call Stockholm syndrome, have you heard of that, where people uh, would learn to uh, actually love and be devoted to their oppressor? It's sort of this sick twist that can happen in a person's mind. Well, sometimes even we fall in love with our captor. We can become devoted to our sin and our vices. Given the option of freedom, we may even continue to choose captivity. And many people do because slavery to sin still has the ring of a certain kind of freedom to it because from the confines of your own home or your own bedroom you're free in a sense to privately do whatever it is you want to sleep with whoever you like to consume any media like media you like to call yourself anything you like to indulge almost every fantasy you like and to die at your own hand or whim as a captive, you answer to no one except your captor, but maybe, maybe you've fallen for him. Well, that's today's version of ultimate freedom that people have become very attached to. I, I can do whatever I like in, in my own house. You can't tell me what to do. That sounds kind of nice. It's got a veneer of nice. But Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. On the, on the cross, he cut the key to unlock your cell. He's handed you the key and he invites you to open the door and share his life, his life which is eternal and full, uh, which is uh, at its best peaceful and holy and dignified, a life that is secure in God's love, a life uh, of freedom which is empowered by the invitation to pray, an invitation, which, by the way, is an invitation to enact real change, to really participate in the course of history. And also, of course, on a, on a personal and private level, to, uh, to be active in, in enacting change in, in your neighbourhood uh, and, of course, uh, further afield. And so all of this we learn about God. He, he, is a, he is very exclusive in that he is but one, but he loves all, and he's held nothing back in bringing all to him. And so from this, we must pray. And we pray to him because he is good, because he has authority. We pray to him uh, because we want to submit our own desires to his, uh, so that we can aspire and achieve the kind of life he he would have us live, uh, peaceful, quiet, holy, godly, dignified. And so that we could Uh, be empowered in him to uh, even be reaching out to others so that we could see them saved uh, as he would desire. Let's pray now. Father, we thank you for the things we've been able to learn today about you. Even just to pause uh, on those words for a moment, that there is one God. It's astounding uh, that we would believe for even a moment that we could speak into the air and be heard by the one God who is true and in command. We do this, uh, we pray not out of uh, arrogance or presumption, but we do it uh, in pure and true faith. A faith that uh, has been confirmed by the fact that you've revealed yourself to us uh, in your word uh, in the person of your son Jesus uh, and uh, by the gift of your Holy Spirit uh, who opens our eyes and, and gives us that gift of faith. Uh, we pray that uh, this gift of prayer is, is is not a thing that we would uh, neglect but that we would use. We pray that uh, we will have the joy of um, not only speaking to you but also seeing our prayers become effective as you uh, work real change in our lives and uh, in our neighbourhoods and, uh, and in our nation and across the world. And we pray that um, for all other good efforts that we might make in, in terms of uh, having our voice heard in, uh, in the halls of government and uh, in terms of evangelising our friends and sharing the good news, we pray that you'll help us to return always to prayer, uh, to do all things in faith and with a good conscience. We pray, um, God, that uh, you would help us to share your vision for the good life. We pray that you will give us lives of uh, peace and quiet as we enjoy um, religious freedom and as we uh, promote uh, peace among ourselves and, and the faith community we enjoy. Uh, we pray uh, that you will help us um, to to enjoy Uh, also uh, godly lives and dignified lives uh, that are pure and holy in every way, both private and public. We pray that you'll help us to continue to strive these things for us and for others uh, in prayer and in action. And just as you pray that all would be saved, uh, just as you desire that all would be saved, we pray that you will give us that same heart, that we will see others as you see them, Uh, That we will see the lost, not as people who are less than, uh, but as people who are lost, who are helpless, who are like sheep without a shepherd. And pray that you will help us to faithfully and lovingly uh, live our lives before them uh, and present your truth to them. uh, And we pray that they would be saved as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.